0: So y'all ready to jump into today's message? I am ready to jump in because last week was phenomenal. Last week, Pastor Jeremy preached a message on six steps. When David and the army of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of David and they took six steps and then they what? They sacrificed and they worshiped. It was awesome, awesome message. Well, I wanna take you now seven years later because when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David and there was worship and cheer and celebration. Friends, they had victory after victory after victory. God's people had great blessings on their life with God's presence in their city. And so seven years later is where we're going. We're fast forwarding seven years from the six steps, sacrifice and worship. And so it brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war. Now kings would normally go out to war to lead their army. But here it says David sent Joab, his commander, and the real Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. So it says that David did not go. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now let me tell you why this was okay for him. It was guaranteed that they were gonna have victory. It was guaranteed that they were the stronger military presence. Victory was guaranteed. And when victory is guaranteed, a king was not necessarily needed to come lead the army. So some of us have maybe read this text in the past and thought, David, you are lazy. No, we have to remember David had spent years of war, decades of war. And here, because of the presence of God, the favor of the Lord, he chose not to go fight against the Ammonites and that was okay. Because here's why. Israel's army was powerful, and David's position was secure. Can you say secure? Secure. It was secure. Israel was secure. Israel was powerful. They were the most powerful nation between the Mesopotamia and between Egypt. They were a powerhouse nation. We have to understand that David also had experienced pain and peace. We know his story. We know his story from being anointed the future king of Israel, while still being a shepherd. We know the story of defeating the giant Goliath. We know the story of Saul being jealous and threatening his life numerous times, trying to murder him numerous times. We know of the pain experienced when he lost his best friend, Jonathan, to death. We know the pain that he experienced, the hiding, the running, the fleeing, He experienced pain, and now he's in a time of peace. For seven years, they've been victorious. For seven years, yes, there's still been battles, but the Lord has been on their sides. But can I give you a warning for seasons of peace? Yes, there needs to be warnings in seasons of peace, and it is this. It is all too often the case that a sense of ease and security is the prelude to spiritual and moral failure. We need to let that sink in for a moment. Moments and seasons of ease when everything is going awesome. In seasons of security, that is the prelude. What does it mean? It means it's a thing that comes before. A moral or spiritual failure. And some of you are thinking, oh, no. (laughs) What's about to happen? We're going to find out. What happens when you are at ease and you're secure, you're not alert. You're not alert. You're not on guard, right? You let your guard down. You get a little bit relaxed. You let, you let your awareness go. See, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, stay alert. He's saying, church, wake up. Wake up. Keep your eyes open. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Friends, it is truth. It is for us that we have an adversary, we have an enemy, the devil, who does look for opportunities, especially when we think things are going good. And when our alertness is down and our awareness is down, he is out to devour. And so let's see what happens. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, how many of y'all are ready to take a rest Sunday afternoon? Come on. Rainy, drizzly weather. It's gonna be a good Sunday nap. So David got out of bed, And was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now let me pause right there. Back in the days of David, there were not water heaters. Okay? they were not water heaters. There were not, you got to turn the knob on your bathtub to check the temperature. Ooh, a little bit too warm, a little bit too cold. They didn't have that. They would fill these baths up on the top of the rooftops and they would allow the sun to warm it up all day long. So it was normal for people to bathe on the rooftop. Now necessarily, I don't know if it was normal for them to bathe during the day. Probably a better idea to bathe at night. But regardless of the timing for the bath, he sees an unusual, beautiful woman. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Why is Uriah's name highlighted? Because Uriah was one of David's 37 mighty men. David knew Uriah the Hittite. David, through his years and years of battles, his years and years of fleeing and hiding, he had 37 right-hand men, 37 mighty warriors who laid down their lives who laid down their priorities, who laid down their timelines, their dreams, their ambitions, and their main goal in life was to serve the future king of Israel, which was David. They were honorable. They were faithful. They were sacrificial. They loved David. And so David finds out that this is Uriah's wife. See, how do we know that Uriah was one of the 37 mighty men? It says here in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, the mighty warriors were, that's verse 26. If you read down the list, Uriah is halfway through that list, Uriah the Hittite. He is 100% confirmed that he was one of David's 37 men. Now, how do you know, Lindsay, that they were close? You're saying they were 37 men, warriors. Maybe he was like number 37, they weren't that close. Well, let me tell you this. We know that Uriah's closeness to David is illustrated because of how closely he lived to the palace. The homes closest to the palace were granted to those closest to the king, those with, that had priority, those that had privilege. So the ability for David to be able to see an unusually beautiful woman naked and bathing on a rooftop was because that home was close to the king because the owner of that home was close to the king. And so he sends, he asks, who is this woman, right? See, I wanna tell you something, friends. Sin only has power if we give it permission. You and I are under a new covenant, which means as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I are under this new commitment, this new partnership with the Lord. And under our salvation in Jesus Christ, we are not a slave to sin. The Bible says that you and I are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free, why? Because our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ, conquered the power of sin, death, hell, and the grave. They have no authority. They have no authority because of salvation in Jesus. But hear me, the only time that gets authority in our lives is when we as believers, men and women of God, give it permission to have power in our lives. It's only powerful if we give it permission. So I wanna ask us this morning, let us do a little bit of evaluation. We'll call it a David check, right? Let's do a David check. Where am I granting permission in my life? So if sin has this authority or this power and it only has power if I grant it permission, is there any area in my life where I'm granting it? Is there an area in my vocabulary? Is there an area in my mind? Is there an area of what I'm allowing in? Is there an area in my relationships? Is there an area in my, my physical well-being? Is there an area in my spiritual well-being where am I granting permission to do something that I know is not what the Lord is for? Let me ask you this other question, because a lot of times we say, okay, well, well, where is it? What is it, right? But can I tell you an even more important question? Why am I granting permission? Let's ask ourselves, why? Am I lonely? Am I feeling I deserve it? Am I like David and I've gone through a lot of pain and, and frustration and heartache and hardship and I am deserve this, this one thing. I'm gonna allow it. I've already given God all these other areas. I'm gonna keep this one a little bit longer, Jesus. Maybe we'll deal with that in 2024, right? We do these things. Why? Why am I lonely, angry, entitled, Deserving, jealous, frustrated. What's the reason? See, James gives us a very good outline for what this looks like in our lives. James says, remember, when you're being tempted, so if you ever see somebody of unusual beauty or whatever that may be, it may not be a woman bathing that would tempt you. It may be something else. You know what tempts you, friends. You know it. So remember, when you're being tempted by that thing, do not say, God is tempting me. God didn't arrange for that woman to be on that roof. God didn't orchestrate and move everything around on the timelines to make sure Bathsheba was bathing the moment that David woke up from his nap. God is not tempting me. You can't say that because God is never tempted to do wrong. Friends, he can't do wrong because God cannot do something contrary to his character. God does not change. So if something is righteous, he's gonna do what is righteous. If something is wrong, immoral, sinful, God cannot do it. If it is evil, It is not his character. He's not able to do it. He never tempts anyone else. So not not only can God not be tempted, God will never tempt you to do something wrong. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. So it's something that comes in us and we know it. It could be like, hmm, right? It's that one look, it's the spark of a curiosity, right? But these desires, they give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So that desire in us has an opportunity to grow. And when it grows in the actions, if we're giving into it, friends, it only leads to not just actual death, but spiritual death. Now some of us are thinking, oh, David, (laughs) right? We see where this could go. And maybe you've never heard this story before and you're thinking, come on, dude, get off, run off that rooftop, run, David, run. But let's see what happens. See, it starts with desire. David sent his messengers to get her. He knows her name, he knows her husband and he sends his messengers to go get her. See, friends, what we do with desire is our choice. It's our choice. It's not God's responsibility what we do with desire. It's our responsibility, what we do with that desire. And i got to show you that David had time. Can I tell you how invaluable the time is between desire and action? Can I tell you how important time is, priceless time is, between desire and action? David had from the moment he said, go get her. Guys, There's no elevators in that palace. He's on a rooftop. Those messengers gotta go down those stairs, through the palace, through the courtyards, to Uriah's house, to her. She's probably not even done getting dressed yet. She has to get ready. Time. Time to think. Time to pray. Time to say, oh God, what am I doing? See, if I were David, I'd be pacing that rooftop. Oh, Lord, I've got this desire. Actually, he probably wasn't even saying, oh, Lord. He was probably keeping Lord right out of the conversation. Got this desire. See, I want to show you this. David had time to prepare his bed or purge his heart. David had time to prepare his bed or purge his heart. Friends, our responsibility, what we do with desire. We have the opportunity to say, "Who, Lord, it's there. And hear me. When we have walked in, in ways before the Lord, right? There may be things. Maybe you smell a certain scent in the air because it's legal now in Las Vegas, but you've walked away from that. But your neighbor smokes it and you smell it when you went out to get some sunlight and you're like, whew, there it is. And maybe you have a desire. What you do with that desire is make, makes it whether it's right or wrong. That moment that desire is there, I'm not judging you on that desire. I don't even believe the Lord is judging you on that moment where that thought comes or that desire comes. But the action steps that you take after that desire, whether you're going and knocking on that neighbor's door and saying, hey, can I join you? Or you're walking inside and saying, "Uh uh-uh, Jesus, I'm turning on some worship music. Come on, I'm not gonna give in to temptation. Lord, you already delivered me from that. I thank you, Jesus, that I'm no longer, that's a crutch in my life. I thank you, God, for what you're doing. See what I'm saying? It's things like that. You could purge your heart or you could prepare your bed. But here's what David did. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. He made the decision to sleep with her. And remember, we gotta remember what James says. James says this, these desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. It's death. See, David, he sleeps with her. Then she returned home. Friends, this was a one night stand. It was a one afternoon stand. A one time only. And later when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Can I tell you this is a significant price to pay for temporary satisfaction? And hear me, desires are temporary satisfactions. It's just like when we eat a meal. I am hungry. I can go and I can get a quarter pounder with cheese, a large diet Coke and a French fry. Or I can make myself a lean turkey sandwich on whole grain bun. Now, the the quarter pounder with cheese may be a lot more appetizing. Come on. That MSG in those French fries, whoo. That grease that nobody's got like McDonald's, whoo, right, is good. It doesn't taste as good and desirable as my whole grain turkey sandwich. But is it better for me? No. Does it cost me more? Yes. Those prices are outrageous, by the way. But anyways, it's a significant price to pay for temporary satisfaction. Temporary. So what did David do, right? It's all, it's all we want to know. What did David do? Did he regret it? Did he think, oh my goodness, Lord, would it, I'm so sorry. Did he apologize to her? He took her against her will. He, he used the authority and the greed and the power of a king. That woman had no choice in the manor. He took her. What did he do? See, then David sent word to Joab. Remember, Joab is the commander of the army. While David is at home in the palace, Joab is leading the Israelite army. And he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. Is he going to apologize to Uriah face to face? What is he going to do? So Joab sent to him, to David. Then Uriah arrived and David asked Joab and how Joab the army was doing, how they were getting along and how the war was progressing, he's making small talk with David, or with um, Uriah. See, friends, sin gets messier when you try to clean it up. We're just going to tell you, because we're going to see a a cleanup on Isle David in just a moment, and it's going to be messy, because he goes on to say, then he told Uriah, go home and relax. Oh, Uriah, you've been fighting so hard. I want you to go home and take some time off. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Why? Why? We can see what David's doing. David is buttering up Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that he thinks that that baby is his. David is setting up a trap. He's setting up a cover-up, right? But Uriah said no. It's not because he doesn't love his wife. It's not because he doesn't wanna be home. Do you know that David made every single person in his army make a vow that they would not sleep with a woman when they are on military duty? How do we know this? Because there's a time in the scriptures where David went to the priest and his people were hungry, his army was hungry. And he asked the priests for food. And the priest said, all I have is this consecrated bread. Your men can't eat it. Have they been with any women? David said, no, my men are not allowed to sleep with any woman while they are in my army. And they ate the consecrated bread. So here is David. Friends, do you know that sin will make you backtrack so much in your godly character? Sin will strip you of righteousness and right thinking. Because now he's breaking his own vows that he made his men vow. You want to trust a leader? The leader needs to do what the leader said they were going to do. Amen. And so he slept at the palace guard. Do you know that he tried this again? He tried this a second night. In fact, he even got him drunk to send him home to Bathsheba to sleep with his wife. But Uriah, even in his drunkenness, would not leave the palace guard. He never touched his wife. And so after two nights of trying, does David confess and say, I'm so sorry, Uriah, I've been doing this. I've been doing this. And I'm wrong. No, it says the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he gave it to Uriah to deliver. So he writes this letter from his palace and he seals it with his seal, his stamp, his kingly stamp. And he puts it in the hands of Uriah. And the letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. Y'all, they had already made a rule not to go too close to city gates because someone had already died being close to city gates in their army. Again, we're breaking. Sin makes you break rules that you laid in place to keep things safe. So he breaks the rule. Next. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Can I tell you sin hurts innocent people? When we make the decision to step outside of God's best for our lives. When we make the decision to lean into desire, to follow it into sinful actions, to allow it literally, it will kill, it'll kill things in our lives. It kills things in our lives. It causes pain in the lives of innocent people. Think of marriages that have been broken up. Think of children that have been hurt by divorces, betrayal, friends, family members. Sin hurts innocent people. And see, this is what happens is that Joab writes David to let him know that this is what happened. Uriah was killed, but David, so were other people. And this is what David says. David says, well, tell Joab, don't be discouraged. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time, buddy. You'll do better next time, friend, right? And conquer the city. Sorry we had some losses. Friends, this was a man who wept over people. This was a man who got broken when even the person Saul who threatened his life died, David mourned. Can I tell you why? Because sin hardens hearts. Sin has to harden our hearts, right? Because how else could we live with it? How else can we live with this, this lie, this thing that is is just wrong in our lives and we know it, we have to get, tougher it has to get harder we have to get less emotional we have to be less aware and open to the things of God see when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead she mourned for him and when the period of mourning was over David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives then she gave birth to a son but the Lord was displeased with what David had done Guys, it hurts the heart of God when we mess up. And speaking from someone who lived a whole lot of life before Jesus, even someone who has made mistakes in relationship with Jesus, because come on, we're all sinners saved by grace, amen? None of us are perfect, not a single one. And sometimes when we're doing something that we're not supposed to be doing, the question that we might ask is, why have I not been caught yet? Why haven't I been caught? And for some, we may think that that's, then God is okay with it, (laughs) or it's not that big of a deal. Can I just put an idea in your mind? Even in Romans, the book of Romans, it says that God is holding back his wrath. It tells the people don't get impatient for God's coming back, for Jesus to come back, because God is literally holding back his wrath to give enough time for people to give their lives to Jesus, to experience salvation and grace. So it says don't grow impatient, I'm choosing to hold back my hand. Did you ever wonder the reason why we haven't been caught is because God's waiting for that moment to touch your heart. He's waiting for that thing that's gonna shake you up, wake you up, get you alert again to say, what in the world have I done? What have I done? Well, she's pregnant, very pregnant. And she's giving birth to a child. She gives birth to a son. And in comes Nathan. See, Nathan the prophet Comes and a prophet is a messenger of God. A prophet is someone who God would speak a word to them to give to a person. And I find it very interesting because David used to not have to go through a prophet. God would just talk to David one on one. But friend, sin blocks us from hearing the Lord. Not because he's not speaking, because we're not listening, right? It blocks us from hearing the Lord. It blocks our hearts from being positioned. And so Nathan tells David a story. He comes and he sees him one day. He says, David, I want to share a story with you. There's a really, really rich man, and he owns all of these sheep, all of these cattle. He owns a lot, so many sheep, pastures full of them. And there's this poor man that lives amongst his property, and this poor man only has one little lamb, and this man loves his lamb. I'm telling you, this lamb eats at this man's table. Friends, this is in Scripture. You can read 2 2 Samuel chapter 12 says he allows this man to eat with him, to share food from the table. He cuddles it like a baby daughter. He loves this lamb like it's his child. And this rich man was one day going to entertain guests. And instead of going out to his thousands of sheep and choosing a sheep from his pasture, he went to the poor man's house, took the poor man's one and only lamb, killed it, and served it to his guests. What do you think about that, David? And David gets irate. David is angry and says, that man deserves to die. That man has to repay that man four times what that sheep was worth. And Nathan looks at David, he says, you are that man. You are that man. You took, you have all of these wives. You have all of these concubines. You have all power, all authority, all blessing, all favor. And you took Uriah's wife and you killed him. David, I am not pleased with you. He went on to say that a sword is coming to David's household. That you experienced peace, David, for seven years. You experienced peace. But now there's going to be death and destruction to your home. Do you know that he said that you, out of all these these things, if you would have just asked, I would have given you more. Can I tell you, friends, that sometimes we choose temporary satisfaction over the truth that God wants to do exceedingly abundantly, more than we can ask, think, or imagine in our lives. He wants to pour it out in abundance, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be in your lap if we pursue him. But when we step outside of his favor, when we step outside of his righteousness, when we step outside of God's best for our lives and we choose to do what we want when we want, God has to take his hand off of it because he does not work with evil. He doesn't work with sin. He can't. So hear me. David realizes, I am that man. And if you've ever had a realization, I have. Oh, my God, God, look what I've done. And David says to Nathan, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against God. It took one story to break the heart of David. One story. Just one story. You know, I love God's word. Because from beginning to end, it was written about them before us. Maybe this is a story of David, but it's a story for us, friends. It's written for us. And if we go to Psalm 51, Psalm 51. You see, this is a psalm that David wrote after Nathan told him this story. After Nathan looked him in the eyes and said, Nah, man, you're that dude. You're that dude. David pours out his heart before the Lord, and I want to read it to you. Psalm 51. In the description, it says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and only you, I have sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Here, this is the famous part. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Friends, do you know that even after the hardest falls, we can turn to the Lord and say, create in me a pure heart, O Lord. The righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up. It says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. He's saying, Lord, forgive me and I will share your forgiveness with others so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, oh God. He goes, you are my savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness." Do you know that yes, it took one story for David to open his eyes, to break his heart, but do you know it only took one Savior to cover the sins of the world? One Savior. Can I tell you that Psalm 51 was recorded by David, but it's not reserved only for David. The created me a pure heart, O God, Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me from your presence or take me, your Holy Spirit, from me. That is a prayer that each and every single one of us can pray anytime we find ourselves in a place. Where God, I've fallen short. I've fallen short because you know what the Bible says? In Romans chapter three, it says for everyone, say everyone, that's you, that's me, that's everyone. That's everyone on their way to church right now, everyone. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God, of his glorious standard. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's amazing. It's a gift. Friends, salvation is a gift that we don't earn. It's something that God makes available for us. His heart is that no one will perish, but that everyone will turn to Christ and experience eternal life. And so if you are in the room today, and you've matched what David has done, or if you've ever lied, or you've, you, you've, you've done something, you've stolen, whatever it is, guys, from the smallest of sins to the greatest of sin, it's all sin, and all of it requires to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And hear me, he so preciously and lovingly and sacrificially offered it to us. I love this. In, in the book of Acts, and hear me, we're learning this in Crave. So women, if you want to know what it's like to be the church, we are learning it Wednesdays in Crave. And what I love about this is Peter, oh, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gets out to the masses and he tells them, do you know we crucified the living God? It was the Messiah that we killed. And he lays out all that God had done for them and giving them Jesus. And at the end of Peter's sermon, the people asked him, brother, what must I do then? I know what I've done wrong, right? I've done a Psalm 51. I've done a 2 Samuel 11. I've sinned. And I have fallen short of the glory of God. What do I do? And Peter said these three things. He says, repent, turn to God, and be water baptized. Repent, turn to God, and be water baptized. Do you know what repent means? It means to change your mind. It means to turn your direction. When I repent, I am recognizing that, God, I have missed the mark. I've missed that glorious standard that you have set up. And I know that in my own human flesh, me as just Lindsay, K. Marie, Bosma, I will never meet that standard. But that is why you've given me your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. Because when God looks at Lindsay K. Marie Bosma, he doesn't see her. He sees the blood of his son, Jesus, and he sees righteousness. He knows me. He knows my flaws. He knows my frustrations. He knows what makes me tick more than my husband knows what makes me tick. He knows me, and he still chooses me. God knows you, and he still chose you anyway. He knows you. And hear me, if you fell yesterday or if you fall seven years from now, he still chooses you. But today we have a choice to make. Am I going to say, God, you're right, enough is enough. Help me turn. I'm going to turn from it, and I'm going to turn to you. I'm not just turning away from sin. I'm turning to Jesus. Because hear me, friends, if you just quit your sin without Jesus, That's nothing, (laughs) that's not a solution. You need salvation to turn to the Lord. This is not an AA program, this is my eternal soul. It's Jesus, I'm gonna turn to God and then I'm gonna be water baptized. See water baptism, the water itself is symbolic of a grave. As you are immersed, your old self dies and is buried just as Jesus died and was buried. In the same way, just as Jesus rose to life again, you too rise from the water as a symbol of new life in him, as branded as a new creation. Come on, how many of y'all are excited and happy to be a new creation in Christ Jesus? We're free from the guilt of your past and sin and shame. By faith, the water washes away anything that makes you feel unclean or unworthy to be loved by your Father. There is no room for shame or unworthiness in the love of our Father. And so would you stand with me today? Do you know that we have 13 people today that have already decided to be water baptized? It's huge. It's huge. It's awesome. For some, they're rededicating their lives. For others, maybe they were never water baptized. But maybe today you're saying, oh, I want that. I want to experience being washed and rising again. I want to experience being a new creation in Christ Jesus. I want to be in relationship with the Father. And friends, it's all possible. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm gonna ask this first, because remember, we repent. And then we turn to God, it's salvation. So if you are in this room, the Bible tells us in Romans that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. If that is you and you wanna pray a prayer of salvation today, will you please raise your hand so I know who I'm praying with? Raise your hand. One, yes, absolutely, anyone else? That's awesome, that's awesome. Beautiful, two, yes, three, yes, four, yes. Come on, thank you, Jesus. Anyone else? That's awesome. We're gonna pray this prayer together. Say it with me, dear Jesus, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I confess my sins. I ask you to forgive me. Be Lord of my life. Come into my heart. Make me a new creation. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And just like you, Jesus, I'm gonna have new life. Today I'm taking on a new identity. Come on, I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I'm a child of God. Yeah. Come on. That's awesome. Amen. Amen. And amen.